Welcome to the Balbury. Working, parenting, playing, voting, advocating, and creating as women. I'm a lot more able to be vulnerable, which I think has impacted my music. And I'm not afraid of that vulnerability. When I was younger, I was afraid people would hurt me for that vulnerability. Now, I see it as one of my greatest strengths because from that vulnerability, I'm able to be completely honest and transparent. And that makes for a deeper listening experience. This is your host, Suki Wessling. Like today's guest, jazz guitarist Mimi Fox. I discovered the guitar in my tween years. Unlike her, I didn't have that, whatever you want to call it, drive, focus, genius, innate ability to take it to a professional level. What drives people to put in the effort to get to the top of their game has been the subject of many books, articles, podcasts, you name it. We as a species are pretty obsessed with the outliers amongst us, and there's a lot of mythologizing about what makes them special. I hope not to do any of that here because I feel like the mythologizing obscures the individual, who is generally much more interesting than the myth. I was literally stopped in my tracks the first time I heard Mimi Fox play live. I was wandering through the Monterey Jazz Festival, much of which takes place in outdoor venues. Mimi was sitting on a stage, hardly separated from the audience that surrounded her in a courtyard. I think you're going to hear the quality that really spoke to me when you listen to this interview. Mimi is real. She was on a stage, but she was really there with the audience, speaking to us as if she had invited us over to a jam in her living room. In this episode, we'll talk about the life experiences that made Mimi real, how she navigated a jazz career when few women were instrumentalists, how she approaches her music. We'll listen to some of her music and hear her explain what she tried to express through her guitar. I hope you enjoy getting to know Mimi as much as I did. Check out more of her music at MimiFoxGuitar.com. Hi, I'm Mimi Fox, jazz composer, recording artist, guitarist, and uh, like to think of myself as an all-around good human being. <laughs> well, welcome to the babblery. I I love that description. <laughs> you know, it's always such an interesting question how we define ourselves. Yeah, you know, I think Suki for me because so many of the times that I'm doing podcasts or interviews, radio, magazine, whatever, press, it's always about my career. It's always about music, and so. Um, I, I have, you know, I mean, I could say that I'm a sci-fi lover and I love animals. Uh, those are also defining aspects of my personality and my life, but uh, I'm not used to talking about some of those other stuff quite as much. Well, then I think that the, the jazz audience is missing a lot. So, <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll talk a lot about who you are as a person and I wanted to get right into it and ask you to describe yourself as a little girl. Who were you? Ha! Wow. Uh, that is a really great question. And man, that's broad. Uh, let me think. Who was I? Well, I was very curious. Sort of the defining uh, 
memory of my childhood in classes anyway, when I was in school, was that my teachers from the time, I mean, from elementary school through high school, um, when uh, they would, you know, finish a certain part of their spiel, whatever they were talking about, it could be any subject. But they they say, now, does anyone have a question except Mimi? <laughs> because I was very, very, I always have been, I have a very analytical mind and I'm very curious about things. And so I like, and I'm very detail oriented. Um, uh, and I think for better or for worse, because I think for my wife and my friends and my fellow musicians, um, I'm sure there are times when my fastidious uh, and my, you know, sort of my fastidiousness and my endless attention to detail and questions can be sort of maddening. But it is also, I think, a quality that has enabled me to excel and to have spent, you know, 25 years sitting in a tiny room with a guitar practicing seven hours a day. You know, it's a certain uh, it's a certain mindset, I suppose, you know, certain qualities. So. I think uh, I think that is something that I remember from being in school is that I, you know, I was always extremely inquisitive. Um, but I think also, you know, honestly, if you ask me who I was as a little girl, my family life was very chaotic. Uh, and also I grew up at a time uh, where um, I was in New York, but, um, you know, my parents, my dad went to the March on Washington. I was just a little girl at the time, but um, you know, my parents were very political and, and politically involved. And so from a very young age, I remember, you know, holding my mom and my dad's hands and being at marches and at rallies and at different things. So that was also a defining uh, part of my childhood for me. But the actual, uh, the gr growing up, I think, was... Um, <laughs> challenging. Uh -huh. I think the environment was, I think my parents were great people, but not great parents. Um, and I, and I really mean that sincerely with all due respect to both of them, but they, they were, I don't think as equipped to have kids as they were to fight the good fight for everything else that they were involved in. Um, and so uh -huh. that's sort of it in a, I guess in a nutshell. Yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned sitting alone seven hours a day and practicing guitar. What do you think drew you? Do you have any idea what drew you to music? Yeah. From a very early age, that was the other thing I was going to say. When I was about six, we had a piano for a brief period of time. And and this was four years before I started playing the guitar. Um, and uh, But I would pick out melodies on the piano. I could hear things and pick them out. and, and um, you know, I showed, a, a, I guess, a keen musical ear. But both my parents loved music and my mom uh, had been a singer uh, and songwriter. And my dad had a huge collection of jazz. He uh, grew up in the Bronx in what was then a Jewish ghetto. And uh, but he would sneak into the jazz clubs uh, when he could, as soon as he could. And so they I think between my parents um, and my mom also loved chamber music and classical music. So I heard. And of course, my older sister and brother and my other cousins who were all older than me, I was the youngest, uh, they listened to most pop music, Motown, rock, you know, the Beatles, all of that. So I heard everything growing up. And I think that environment um, 
really, uh, you know, but I, I don't know. I've, I've always, I always said this in interviews, Suki, but I, I'm really, really an auditory person, which would seem obvious, you know, for a musician. But I mean, I really, I really do experience the world through my ears when I'm traveling, wherever I am, I hear, or when I'm touched by something personally, um, the emotions that I feel, uh, you know, that everything is expressed through what I hear. Uh, and, and, um, and that has always been true for me. It just, music always touched me on a very deep level. And it was a visceral experience that I would have listening to music from an early age. I would start sobbing when my mom would play me things, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and it was always very moving. I mean, my mom, again, not exercising the greatest, uh, discretion, like would play for me, Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit when I was, you know, seven years old, which is, you know, I was precocious, but not that precocious. I had nightmares for months because my mom told me what it was about. And, <laughs> you know, but I think I, I have always just been very touched, you know, by music. I think most musicians, most artists are very sensitive people. And, um, <laughs> and I think that, uh, having an expression, uh, I'm very grateful that I started playing at such an early age because I had that outlet um, and through some very hard times, particularly in my adolescence. And so having, you know, having music as a, it really was my best friend for many years. Uh, we moved a lot when I was growing up and my, and you know, there was a lot of chaos in my parents' relationship and in the home. So I think having, uh, having something that was, you know, my older brother and sister would make fun of me when I was a kid, but I would often fall asleep with my guitar, sleeping with my guitar and fall asleep with it and wake up with it. And this is when I was like 10, 11 years old. And, uh, and really from the minute that I had a guitar in my hands, when I was 10, I said to my mom, I said, mom, this is all I ever want to do. I just knew it. It was like a, you know, a fate. That's amazing. And I know, I mean, I'm sure you know this, that um, a lot of the music that, especially in the Spanish tradition that has been written by, for and about guitars, celebrates the guitar as a woman. And you were sleeping with your arms around your guitar because, you know, the, the female shape yeah. is sort of obvious. Um, but also the the intimate relationship that you had, do, you know, you, it sounds like you didn't feel like you had that much of an intimate relationship with your parents and your family. Yeah, it, it was, it was, um, troubled and I will just leave it at that. I'm not, um, I'm not a person because I'm a public figure to go into great length about, uh, the, my, you know, tortured childhood and adolescence, <laughs> which it really was. However, um, I will just say that, yeah, music was solace for me, for sure. It was, mm -hmm. uh, and definitely, I, I think, my, my best friend. We're speaking with jazz guitarist Mimi Fox. Aside from a few upcoming gigs, Mimi says that at this time in her life, she's exploring the concept of downtime, catching up on Star Trek, and working on writing a jazz opera. But long before she got to this point, she was driven to excel in her chosen profession. Unlike many musicians who talk about putting in work to get where they are, Mimi speaks about music as a relationship that she's had to build. You know, to this day, 
it's something that I talk to conservatory students about those, you know, many students that I've seen that are career bound, serious players. I will talk with them about the fact that, you know, it's a lifelong relationship that you're having with this instrument and it is its own unique uh, relationship. And it's, it's hard to, it's hard to describe what it means. And I think for everybody that has devoted their life to the art form and to, you know, attempting to really play the instrument well. And notice I don't say master it because I don't believe it can be mastered. Mm -hmm. I believe it masters us if we're lucky. <laughs> um, but uh, I think, you know, it is definitely, it's, it can be a very personal thing for everybody that has this, you know, long-term mm -hmm. intimate relationship with it. So did you, how did you come across the guitar? I, I read that, that you started with drums and then you, how did you, how did you get introduced to? Well, it's very, it's very, uh, it makes a cute story and all the publicists that I've worked with, like talking about it in my bio, but essentially really it was the monkeys. This gives away my, uh, my age to everybody that can't just go to Wikipedia and see it within two seconds, but, uh, it's pretty funny. Um, I just, uh, you know, I was 10 years old when the Monkees TV show uh, was, uh, you know, first came on air, on the air. And uh, I thought Mike Nesmith was the coolest thing. And he had a little felt hat. And uh, he was actually one of the ones that actually did write probably arguably the best musician of them and a good songwriter. And one of the first songs that I ever wrote when I was 10 is called I Love You, Mike. And uh, no, I will not play it with you. But I will just say that for a 10-year-old, it had actually four chords, not three chords. It actually had a whopping four chords in it. Ooh. Yeah. So it was pretty sophisticated for 10. But uh, yeah, it was the monkeys. And then, of course, my older sister and brother were like, Mimi, the monkeys are not really good. You should listen to the Beatles. They're much hipper, you know. And then that started a whole series of things. And I, But, you know, early on, it was you know, the monkeys, the Beatles, and then the Beach Boys. And I always was drawn, interestingly enough, even though people made jokes about the monkeys, in addition to Mike Nesmith, they had some very good songwriters that were writing their songs. Uh, so people may not be familiar. One of them was Carol King uh, and uh, Neil Sedeckin, Neil Diamond. Uh, and these were all really, really talented songwriters. So they had some good material to work with. And of course, the Beatles and uh, Brian Wilson you know, were also wrote very beautiful melodies. And, uh, and I would argue, uh, you know, Paul's dad, Paul McCartney's father was into jazz. And I think many of the songs that he's written, in fact, some of the arrangements of Beatles songs that I do in a jazz context that reimagine them, um, really are based on very much on jazz standards and have a really direct, you know, uh, link to that. And Brian Wilson also wrote these fabulous beautiful melodies and great songs. And so I was always drawn to beautiful melodies. And that remains true for, for me as a, as a jazz artist. I, I like many kinds of jazz, but uh, to me, a beautiful melody is where it's at and will always be where it's at, first and foremost. Everything else is icing on the cake. Uh -huh. And a lot of people who don't listen to jazz might not realize how important the melody is because you pretty much leave the melody you go through it once and then you're, you're going, you're improvising. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So, so the melody though is still there for you while you're improvising. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, for me, and again, it's something that I've always talked to my students about over the years, not only is the melody there, but I'm also hearing the lyrics 
you know, there's sort of when you're playing for me as a jazz uh, musician, when I'm soloing after the melody is played and then we go to improvise, I'm hearing the melody in the background, but I'm also hearing the lyrics to the tune. So if I'm playing Autumn Leaves and I could be playing it for the, you know, 5,000th time, but I'm, I'm hearing, you know, I'm hearing the melody, the falling leaves drift by my window, the autumn leaves of red and gold. I see your face, the summer kisses, the sunburned hands I used to hold. Uh, and when I'm lucky, I can hear those lyrics in French because there's beautiful lyrics in French too. But anyway, the point being that it's the totality of understanding what a song is about. And as jazz musicians, you know, the great American songbook uh, is, you know, something that we use as a springboard for many of our improvisations. And without knowing the lyrics and, and understanding the melody, which I, I believe is sacrosanct, with, without having that, you know, as a foundation, your improvisation lacks, um, you know, depth and it would lack a home base. Mm-hmm. Um, it also would just frankly not make any sense. I mean, because ultimately, you know, for me as an artist, the best compliment that I can get from a critic is say she plays lyrically. That's a really cool thing. That means that I'm telling, we think about lyrics, I'm telling a compelling story. And that's what it's about. You know, when people come to my shows, you know, it's great if they say, oh, you know, you're a great guitar player. Well, that's wonderful. And that's, you know, that's great. And that honors all my years of practicing. But really, am I, I don't want people going out of a concert, scratching their heads and going, well, what the hell was that was about? You know, Mm -hmm. I'd rather them go out saying, wow, that was a compelling story. That was, that's something that is, you know, moving me. And that's, that's what makes me happy as an artist. When I have people come up to me and say, wow, that piece really moved me or it made me cry. It made me think about my wife. She just passed or made me think of my dad or whatever it may be. Um, And then I know that for me as an artist, that's what I live for those moments. Guitar is an extremely easy instrument to learn how to play and an extremely hard instrument to master, not master, but, you know, to become a top jazz player on guitar requires you to learn so much theory, technique, and um, frankly, getting your fingers to move as fast as your fingers move. <laughs> so, so what did you, what was yeah. it that gave you that? Why, why were you able to do that? Well, there, there were, I always loved, you know, in addition to melody, um, one of the things that I always loved about jazz from hearing my mom and dad's, you know, recordings when I was a kid is I love the rhythm of jazz. I love the, I love swing. I love that feeling of swing. And I did play drums in junior high and high school jazz bands, you know, cause they didn't really, most of them didn't have guitar then, but I did play drums and, um, you know, well, Duke Ellington said it best. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. And I've always loved, I've always loved the swing of jazz. And it's funny, you mentioned rock and roll. I actually never really dug rock that much. I love the Beatles, but again, the swing, the freedom of jazz, you know, the, the spontaneous creativity that happens when you're soloing and extemporaneous conversation that, you know, that happens, that exploration that happens in that moment. And I'm not a, a musical snob. I love many kinds of music. I still love, well, I'll listen to almost anything. You know, jazz, it just gives me the freedom to express myself. We're speaking with jazz guitarist Mimi Fox. Coming up, Mimi's take on the Beatles' Blackbird and reflections on being a woman instrumentalist in jazz.
You've been listening to The Balbury. We'll be back after this short break. You are listening to The Balbury. I'm your host, Suki Wessling. I'm speaking with jazz guitarist Mimi Fox, who has recorded a wide variety of music from standards to originals. Jazz musicians often write their own music, but at the core of the discipline are the standards, many drawn from what's called the American Songbook, popular songs from the first half of the 20th century. Before rock and roll, popular music was dominated by professional songwriters who wrote melodically sophisticated music. Think George Gershwin and Cole Porter, tunes which are easily adopted and adapted by jazz musicians. There's room for argument over what sort of tune is the best for jazz interpretation, but there's general agreement that the three or four chord rock song doesn't offer much to build on. One rock band that broke the mold, however, was the Beatles. Paul McCartney, especially, was raised on the popular American songbook music that his parents listened to, and some of his tunes have become standards in their own right. Mimi Fox recorded the Beatles' song Blackbird on her 2019 album This Bird Still Flies. We'll hear it in a minute after she introduces how the recording came about. A few years ago, um, I decided to do an album of all acoustic material, uh, all acoustic guitar, most of it's solo. I have a few duets on the album. And the album is called This Burst Still Flies. Uh, It was the the title track, uh, the composition This Bird Still Flies, uh, references uh, my journey uh, after an 18-year relationship ended and then I got breast cancer. And this was in um, 2011. Coming out of that time period, uh, I think This Bird Still Flies came out in 2018 or 2019. Anyway, I did an all-acoustic project, and one of the songs that I'd always loved was Paul McCartney's Blackbird. So I decided to see what I could do. It's such a classic. It's such a beautiful song, great melody, great lyrics. I wanted to try to do something different and reimagine it and pay deep respect to Paul's song, but also try to create something really fresh in a jazz arrangement. So I came up with the arrangement of Blackbird.
Talk us through your process of, in this case, a song that you know so well that you would have listened to as a teenager. Um, what's your relationship to this song and how does that affect how you play it? Well, I think Blackbird, you know, which I arguably is one of Paul's more beautiful songs. I love his ballads. I've recorded other ones. I, I particularly love uh, Blackbird and She's Leaving Home. I would single those out as two of my favorites. Um, just in exquisite melodies, you know, beautifully conceived, both melody-wise and lyrically beautiful songs. And Blackbird is a story about, um, you know, resilience. And it can mean many different things to many different people. To me, I had always loved the song and it, it had personal resonance as it does, I think, for many people. Uh, and all great songs do this where they are universal but personal at the same time. And I think Blackbird is a great example of that. But for me, some of the challenges that I've had in my life to to remember to remember that I can soar. And again, the, you know, my the title cut from the album is This Bird Still Flies. So it sort of makes sense that Blackbird would be one of those birds that is, you know, still flying. So and I love the connection with that. But also I found out um, at the time, right before I recorded it, a student of mine sent me an article from, I think it was Rolling Stone magazine. And apparently Paul had written the tune to pay his respect and love and a, a sort of a loving homage to the Little Rock Nine, to the students that integrated the high school in Little Rock. And I had never known that, but apparently both Paul and John, uh, all of the Beatles, but you know, as the main songwriters, they were following what was happening in our civil rights movement very, very closely and were very moved by it. And so, uh, and apparently years later when he was doing a concert in Little Rock, Paul met one of the women who was a part of the Little Rock Nine and it was, uh, you know, either before or after the show. And I think it was very moving for, for both of them, I'm sure. But when I found that out. So the song was originally, I think, going to be called Black Girl. And then he changed it to Blackbird and um, developed the song from there. But uh, that made me love the song even more. And I was, I was reading the article in Rolling Stone. I just started crying. And I was like, so, you know, it has so much meaning to all of us for whatever we want to attribute to it. Again, as all great lyrics do, both universal and personal. But when I read that, uh, you know, that just made me love the song even more. And I knew than that I had to come up with a creative, you know, arrangement. So, you know, there's a lot that comes to bear when you take such a classic, iconic song and try to find something, you know, different to create, but also because you want to, you have to first, as I mentioned you know, earlier, you know, you have to, the melody is sacrosanct. So you have to honor the melody and yet try to flesh out the harmony in a way that respects the meaning and intent of the song and the lyrics, and yet uh, sort of opens it up, if you will. So the bird is really taking flight and really, you know, it is something that has to be something fresh out of something so familiar, if that makes sense, Suki. So that's what I try anytime, uh, you know, I take a piece that is written by someone else, a standard, whether it be a jazz or in this case, a Beatles standard, uh, try to find uh, something fresh to make out of it. Mm -hmm. And I noticed you talked about how when you did that album, you had come out of a long relationship and also were being treated for cancer. And those two things are 
both things that are you're experiencing alone and you chose to make a solo album. Do you feel like you needed that solo experience to to reflect how you were feeling at the time? Hmm, that's really interesting. Uh, well, I'm hesitant to say that those experiences, I know that I understand what you're saying, Suki, but I did have so much support. I was very lucky to have a lot of friends and I had a surrogate mom on the West Coast who really was with me every step of the way through my cancer treatment because she had she was retired and could could be there for me. It was really incredible. So I had a lot of love and support. So I I certainly wouldn't say alone, but I understand what you mean to the extent that there are times, you know, you lose a long term relationship. There is a gut wrenching loneliness or I had a good friend and he said to me that uh, losing a relationship after 18 years was kind of like surgery without anesthesia. And I always thought that was a, I, I, I was always grateful for him for giving me that, you know, very, uh, I don't know, it felt right. It just felt right when he said that. So that was incredible. And also through my cancer treatment, I, you know, was fortunate they caught it very early and, you know, and I did have a lot of support from many friends, a lot of love in my life, which I was very grateful for. But I think maybe what you're talking about is a sort of period of introspection that could happen after those things. And I, I've always been a very introspective person. I don't think there's too many composers that are not introspective because you you have to have time, you know, playing and composing our solitary experiences. So, you know, and I had I had done uh, several solo guitar albums before, but never all acoustic. But I think it was more more so to to get to the I think the core of what you're asking me, Suki, I think the acoustic element of that album was more a result of those two things of the relationship ending and cancer because acoustic guitar was the first instrument that I started on. And so even though I went on to, you know, play my jazz box as it's referred to my jazz guitar and, you know, have my own model with heritage guitars, which is an electric jazz hollow body and a different type of guitar. I think the acoustic guitar uh, was taking me back to my roots, you know, because some of the, the the first people that I really enjoyed, in addition to the Beatles, but I, you know, I listened to Joni Mitchell, I listened to Crosby, Stills and Nash, I listened to James Taylor, the acoustic guitar, Bonnie Raitt. Really, the acoustic guitar was the uh, main instrument for all of those artists. And so when I was young and I was first learning to play, those were the recordings that I played along with to teach myself how to play the guitar. So. Um, there was a way that, um, you know, doing an all acoustic album felt very much like coming home, uh, even though, of course, everything I do is through a jazz lens, through an improvisational lens. I think I if people have commented that, uh, you know, they can hear my voice, my musical voice and my compositional voice different when it's on an acoustic guitar. And and I think that that's really true. Um, yeah, it's it's. Also, you know, the acoustic guitar, you can feel the wood against your body when you're playing. Um, there's a resonance uh, and an immediacy to it that I think is different uh, than when you're playing an electric guitar uh, because the sound is coming right from you and your hands and your fingers and your six strings and the wood against your body. It's a very personal experience and mm -hmm. a personal expression. When guitarist Mimi Fox came up in the jazz world, she was unusual, and 30-some years later, she still is. When you see a woman on a jazz stage, she is 
almost certainly a vocalist. And although estimates vary about instrumentalists, there are at least four times more men in the pro ranks, and it seems that the imbalance is even greater amongst amateurs. These days you can learn jazz at universities, but to really learn jazz, you go to jams. Jams are often competitive and extremely masculine. In this next part of our interview, Mimi mentions the book she's working on, tentatively titled Woman Musician Survival Guide, which she points out has taken so long to write that now she needs a new title to match our more gender-inclusive society. When I started the book, which was about eight years ago, things have changed. Things are continuing to change. And I think the jazz world, both, you know, like booking agents, festival promoters, venues, magazines, they've all made a big push to really support. And there are a lot more great women instrumentalists that are making names for themselves, including some wonderful guitarists. And so that's really exciting. But yeah, when I was younger, when I I could have my guitar strapped right on my back and I'd go up at a jam session and the leader of the jam session would say, well, what do you want to sing, sweetie? (laughs) And I'd say, what is this? You know, eventually I got so irritated. I said, well, what does this look like on my back? Take a look at this. Does this look like a golf bag? Because it isn't. It's a guitar. In my formative years of learning jazz, I had moved to the Bay Area already, and I found some kindred spirits, both women and men, who supported me and supported my music. And I would be negligent if I didn't give a shout out to one of my early mentors and now friend, Bruce Foreman, uh, who I met early on when I came here and was just getting into jazz. And Bruce was incredibly supportive. And also, unlike some other guys that shall remain nameless, never hit on me when I was younger either and made that experience, you know, uncomfortable. He was always just a real, uh, well, he's a character, but he was always just a really, uh, really treated me with respect. But when I was younger, I certainly had to deal with a lot of issues. I would say that, you know, gigs in particular, you know, it was challenging because afterwards when the guys would go to hang out, you know, they would tell lewd jokes. They were, you know, it was a kind of like a locker room experience that I was subjected to. It was very, you know, inhospitable. However, over time, I found guys that were not like that. And then they would go to jam sessions with me. So I wasn't the only woman. And if I was, I had some guys that had my back. Early on, I was reading about Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. And uh, and then, of course, enjoyed the writings of so many great authors such as Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou. And I would use them as inspiration because if I go to a jam session and somebody dissed me or was just flat out, you know, rude or inappropriate or gross, I would think about Harriet Tubman and I would say, me, really? Get over yourself, you know? So I used it as a kind of tough love uh, to push me forward and, uh, and that sort of spurred me on. In addition to developing a thick skin, and having a good sense of humor, which can help really neutralize a lot of unfortunate circumstances. I think um, also not personalizing things. That's that's a real problem for women is that if someone says, ah, you don't know how to play, you know, if, if you're a woman and you don't have any confidence and you and you don't believe in yourself, you could put your guitar in the case and never play again. When we return, more music and talking about music with jazz guitarist Mimi Fox. You've been listening to The Balbury. We'll be back after this short break.
You are listening to the Babelry. I'm your host, Suki Wessling. I'm speaking with jazz guitarist Mimi Fox about her life as a female jazz musician. In this last segment of our talk, we turn to the music itself, the sound, and how Mimi speaks music as a language. Let's start by listening to her composition, East Coast Attitude, from her 2004 album, She's the Woman. guitarist Mimi Fox with East Coast Attitude. I wanted to give for the listeners two very wildly disparate pieces because it shows some of the range of who I am as a player and composer, but also just to to say this is what jazz can be. It can be a beautiful arrangement of Blackbird or it can be an original that's kind of edgy and tense. And so East Coast Attitude, I grew up on the East Coast, primarily in New York, but my family moved a lot. And so it is sort of um, there's an intensity and a speed and just a sort of 
directness about the East Coast. And so this, this song just sort of flew out of me one day, after, probably after I'd come back from uh, some shows in New York and came back to the Bay Area. And it was just sort of popping around in me and it just sort of flew out as a very sort of angular kind of uh, intense piece mm-hmm. that just came out. When you compose, what do you set out to do? That's a great question. Um, what I set out to do is ultimately to touch people. You know, a lot of composers talk about how a song has to come out or piece has to come out. Is you get a, it's sort of a, a create part of the creative process for me. You know, it's usually a person or a place that I've been to, something that will really inspire me, and then I will write music about it or you know, an experience uh, or something that happens in the world that I will write music about. So, because I'm very, like my parents, very politically engaged. And so, you know, everything that happens, I'm taking it in and I'm sort of like a musical sponge, just soaking up everything. And so what I want to do with every piece I write is to tell a story, to tell a story that is, can best, you know, for me, can best be, you know, told through music. You know, I love poetry. And as I mentioned, I love reading great writers. Uh, but for me, you know, music is the, I think the, the most eloquent uh, form that I have for me as a human being to express myself. And so that's my go-to place, but it, it's got to be a good story. It's got to be a, you know, again, a strong melody has got to have a, a strong rhythm and, you know, and everything sort of flows from there. But I've got to be inspired. You know, the first thing that that has to happen for me is inspiration. And from that inspiration, I go deeply into myself and I'm able to feel it's always an emotional experience first. And then I'm able to translate that through my years of study and knowledge into a composition. But it's got to be a hard thing first. I got to feel it and experience something. And then I'm able to, mm-hmm. you know, go from there. It sounds like you have not concrete things in mind, but that you have a sense of at least an emotional story. You you talked about with East Coast Attitude that it was really about your feeling about the culture of where you come from and, and that, you know, you came back here to California. We're all, we're all a little bit more, um, we're nicer. <laughs> no, that's not <laughs> true. Cause you know, I spend a lot of time in New York and New Jersey and they're nice in their own way. But it's there. It's a different it's a very different kind of uh, experience. Yeah, yeah it's just it's just a different, you know, kind of uh, affect, mm-hmm. actually. But so you're when you're when you're composing, you're you are keeping some sort of thing. It's just an interesting thing to think about how you go from that to something as abstract as music. Yeah, you see, that's the that's the difference, I think, for me as a musician and a composer uh, the music is not abstract. It actually is home base for me. That's what I was saying, you know, as an auditory person, that is my go-to. You know how dogs have a great sense of smell and cats use their little whiskers, you know, to navigate things. But for me, you know, I do experience the life in my heart. Everything I experience, I've, I, I hear music uh, through things. So there's not a time my wife will tell you this, we can be on vacation in Hawaii and we'll be laying on the beach, which is a rare thing for me because I'm not a person that likes to sit down a lot. But anyway, let's say I'm trying to relax and I'm laying on the beach. She will watch my fingers tapping 
and that she knows that I'm hearing a rhythm and I'm hearing music in my head. I'm ostensibly supposed to be on vacation in Hawaii, relaxing like a normal person. Uh, and uh, that that doesn't always happen. So, so for me, again, music is not abstract. It's very concrete. And it just, you know, things just sort of develop as I let it, let it emerge, you know, not so abstract for, for me, more, more concrete, just like this is what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, I get up, I have my oatmeal, and then I sit down and music comes out. When I approached Mimi Fox about speaking with me on The Babelry, I warned her that my interviews aren't quite what she's used to. If you look up conversations she's had with music journalists where they, for example, geek out about guitar brands, strings, or obscure live recordings, you'll know what I mean. I appreciate how Mimi was willing to open up not just about her career, but herself. As I often remind listeners, the one thing a woman can't leave behind is her body. When she steps on stage, Mimi is a woman, a maturing woman, and a thoughtful one. You know, what I started to learn was that any guy that was, you know, treating me, you know, in an unfortunate fashion was also treating other women and men that way. In other words, he was a jerk. The problem wasn't me, it was him. And it took me a while to get that. uh, But once I got it, it was very, very liberating. You know, and then as time goes on, it's an interesting thing that I have found um, usually the best musicians at the highest level that I would work with that were men, those that were really great players were able to be, including like Bruce Foreman, were able to be really supportive of me because instead of being threatened, they wanted more women players to get what they deserved. I think they took a sort of thing as like, well, work is like rooting for the underdog and they were on my side. And I started to let the people that I could see would really be there for me. I let them mentor me and I let them help me. And I took great comfort in that. Terry Lynn Carrington, who I'm happy to call a friend and someone I've, you know, played with a number of different uh, festivals. Uh, she, she did a book recently called 101 Standards. Uh, it's called New Standards, 101 Compositions by Jazz Women, in which one of my pieces is in there, which I'm really thrilled about. But uh, partly to rectify the imbalance of all the fake books having so few compositions by women. I can tell you what they are. Anne Ronell, who wrote Willow Weep for Me, Bernice Petkir, who wrote Close Your Eyes and um, uh, Lullaby of the Leaves, Dorothy Fields, who wrote lyrics for many tunes. And then we start getting really pretty slim pickings from there. Uh, so <laughs> it's really... Um, you know, just really sad. So anyway, she wrote this book, but she said once she was being interviewed and she said, if women had been represented equally and fairly throughout the history of jazz, and um, then the whole way we listen and experience the music would be different. And, uh, you know, that's true in many things in life. We've got, you know, it's sort of the you know, Mother Earth, Father Sky stuff is out of balance. A lot of women feel like their point of view on life changes as they mature. And I wondered if you feel that you're different than you were that when you were young and, and how, and how it might've changed your point of view on both your career and also more intimately on your music. That's also a fabulous question, Suki. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, a number of things. I think one of the things that happens for all of us and probably not just women for men too, um, aging, uh, does bring with it a certain wisdom. There is the capacity to choose your battles, uh, to take more things in stride. 
you know, as I mentioned earlier in this interview, when we were talking, when I was really young and go to jam sessions, I would really personalize things. Uh, and uh, I didn't have a capacity to, um, to see things from a, from more of a distance. You know, I was sort of right in the thick of things and, and was very adamant and more strident. And I think, you know, since so you could say I've lost some of that East Coast a- attitude, I don't have quite so much of an edge. I can get it if I need to, but I don't, I don't come from that place anymore as my sort of defended. I, I'm a lot more able to be vulnerable, which I think has impacted my music. And I'm not afraid of that vulnerability. When I was younger, I was afraid people would hurt me for that vulnerability. Now I see it as one of my greatest strengths because from that vulnerability, I'm able to be completely honest and transparent. And that makes for, I think, a deeper listening experience uh, for the audience. Um, And I also, you know, I feel like I'm playing at a much higher level because I'm more balanced emotionally. And so, yeah, there's been many changes that I've gone through personally and and musically. But I think, um, what was I going to say? I I don't know. I think that as a woman in the world, there are, you know, things that are, that we all sort of have to contend with. And yet there are also, you know, it's sort of like, I think the older I get, it's sort of like, the glass is more often uh, half full rather than half empty. So that instead of, you know, I do have horror stories about things that happened to me as a, as a, you know, woman musician uh, in my life. However, I focus on the really good things that happened to me too. And as I mentioned, many people that really supported me. And I think that that capacity to look on the bright side, you know, to see things as more half full Mm -hmm. is something that um, was not second nature for me, was certainly not natural for me. And I think uh, as I've gotten older, you know, I can see my life through, you know, from a distance and see that, yeah, I've, I've taken my knocks, but I've also had some amazing things happen and I've been very fortunate. So it's sort of, you know, being very grateful. And I think that this gratitude is something that uh, is a fairly new thing for me, but I think can only happen, at least for me, it only happened as I, you know, as I matured. And I will say another thing that's been really wonderful for me, and I think a lot of women as they get older start to uh, feel this way, um, is that I, more often than not, I feel like I'm enough. I didn't, I never used to feel that I was enough. I suffered from, I think women suffer from it more than men, not that men don't too, but it, you know, the imposter syndrome, uh, I was never good enough. I would either as a, a musician, as a friend, as a human being, as a partner, you know, I could go on and on and on about how I never felt like I was enough. And now for the most part on my better days, I do. And that is a real gift of, I think, of my uh, aging and my healing, the, the, the changes I've gone through in my life. So uh, I'm very grateful for that. That enoughness, that's a sense of being enough is, you know, really great because a lot of things can flow from there. As I guess a, a final statement here, 
at this point in your career and in your life, what do you want to do as a person and an artist? What do you want to send out there? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Well, partly I'm hoping that by taking a little break, that the that answer to your question will be more uh, understood for me, <laughs> and I will be able to answer it in a more full and cohesive way. I think for me, uh, obviously being able to move people, when I do shows and someone comes up and say they were really moved or that they started crying when I played a piece, that means a lot to me, uh, to touch people. Thanks to guitarist Mimi Fox for sharing her recordings of Blackbird from her 2019 album, This Bird Still Flies, and East Coast Attitude from her 2004 album, She's the Woman. You can learn more about Mimi's music and touring schedule at MimiFoxGuitar.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Balbury. Subscribe to The Balbury on your favorite podcast platform or visit B-A-B-B-L-E-R-Y.com to access more episodes. The Babbleery is produced with support from KSQD Radio in Santa Cruz, California.